Welcome to episode 28 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. And thanks for joining us on the Page One podcast. If this is the first episode you're listening to, eh, at the Page One podcast, we speak to writers of all descriptions, authors, screenwriters, comic writers, video game writers, about their work, about how they got into writing, and try and get some hints and tips to make us all better writers. We've got a great array of past guests eh, that you can go and listen to, people like David Baldacci, Mike Carey, Tim Levin, Sarah Pimbra, Peter James, Gareth Powell, and many, many more. So please do check out the past episodes in the in your podcast app. Now, as you can probably hear, we are doing this one over over Skype once again because we are, of course, COVID lockdown still. Yes, I hope lockdown. everyone's out there is under lockdown, and I hope everyone out there is is safe and is doing okay. Everyone's yep. mental health's all right under the. 24-7 staying inside your house. Marco, you must be down to your last tin of beans. Just about time for that supermarket run. <laughs> yeah, but I, ha- I, have, I have 100 rolls of toilet roll, so I'm, I'm fine. I'll start <laughs> eating that soon. Um, no, but obviously there are far more important things in the world going on just now. But we hope that this podcast is one way that you can be distracted for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour each week and just take your mind off it all. Because I know that trolling through the news is not good for anyone at the moment. <laughs> um, if you do like the Page One podcast it, we always make an appeal to uh, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts in particular because it really helps us shoot up the charts and if we go up the charts that helps us continue to get great guests for the podcast speaking of yeah. which who is on the podcast this week Tarek? This week we are chatting with Neil Forsyth, who is an author and a, probably best known for a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guilt was his last big show, which you might have seen on the BBC yes. uh, towards the end of last year. Great dark. Uh, he's also a really drama. good dark kind of comedy yeah. drama. Um, he's done a bunch of TV shows uh, as well as a whole number of books. And Bob Servant, made was a Bob Servant fan, is a Twitter phenomenon. Yeah. He's a, a, you, what is it? How would you call him? I think, I think Neil calls Svengali, uh, I think, is, is the word yeah, that, that's right. that Neil used. Yeah, it became, it started out, I think, as a book, and then I think it sort of was a quite a niche book, and then Irvin Welsh, as, as Neil speaks to us, Irvin Welsh picked up on it, gave it a good rating, and then suddenly it exploded. It became a TV show with... Um, Brian Cox. Brian Cox, there you go. Uh, of succession fame and yeah now he lives on on twitter but yeah it, it was i thought it was a great chat we had with neil um we hear how he's moved from moved through journalism into becoming an author and then a screenwriter and we chat to him about how writing courses can be really helpful and things like you know how you inject humor into you know what is quite a serious story and guilt really but yeah. it, it has that underlying dark humour as you were saying yeah and and, and guilt does show that you can do a you know you can have a storyline where someone gets murdered and you can do it one way or you can do it a completely different way and they can still be good dark dramas but humour can completely change the tone of something and, and Neil's got some really good tense and tips on how to use that yeah and he also has some great anecdotes he's got a great story about Derek Akora uh, who is a <laughs> UK or was a UK psychic, I think, and I'm, I'm waving my fingers in the air for um, <laughs> quotation marks because I'm slightly sceptical of such things. But uh, anyway, we're we're um, rambling on far too much just now, so we'll get straight on to the podcast, and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know who's on next week's podcast. See you then. <laughs> want to be a writer was that always the goal i think i probably did if if i'd been sort of pinned down for it but i think i had the childhood and teenage experience of a lot of creative people that i didn't have the confidence maybe to overtly say that's what i'd like the plan to be i kind of it's funny i think i grew up in dundee in the in the in the in the 90s in terms of formative years and teenage years and there's something 
that probably seems a bit distant now in the internet age, but growing up in a provincial city before the internet, these things all felt very, very distant um, and impossible. And even though I was was good at English at school and by far my best subject and would be complimented on it and things like that, I kind of still felt a bit a bit impossible and a bit um, showy, maybe, to say that that's what you wanted to do. Didn't feel like a career. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I'm not someone that kind of went off to get a trade or anything. I still went to university, but even there, I, I did. I didn't do English because it felt you really. Maybe you felt you're pinning yourself to the putting your colours to the mast a bit, and it had to kind of work. Whereas I did a more generic sort of arts degree in that. I felt maybe that was, again, not being quite confident enough to say, this is what I want to do. I think I could do it. Um, I think that's pretty universal and yeah. not a bad thing either, if I'm honest. I mean, I think what I did instead was go off and get a fair bit of life experience mm-hmm. before I started properly properly writing. And uh, I think that's probably been stood me in good stead. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because you're often going to get that. There's almost two paths, isn't there? That a lot of people say... I think a lot of folks say, oh, you should definitely go down the creative writing, you know, all, all the qualifications down that path. And a lot of folks say the opposite and say, no, it's actually good to get some experience in stuff other than writing, and then you can bring that into your work. Oh, yeah, I, I sort of did it the other way around. And I, I did a screenwriting course in my 30s in New York Film Academy, and that made a huge uh, difference to me. But I, I think the key was that, that by that point I had probably lived a life that gave me lots to write about. And I yeah. think that, that kind of um, helped. I think, you know, I get sometimes if, if people come and ask you to read their, their scripts or, or, or chat about being a writer, it, it, sometimes it's people who are looking at writing as a sort of second life maybe after doing other things or they've yeah. had a really interesting experience and they want to write about it or something's happened within their life that they feel the need to write about. Mm-hmm. And that always feels to me like it's maybe got a richer hinterland for them than when you get um, you know younger people coming to you who are at university and so on and 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 I'm not saying they can't do it and there's lots of examples of them doing so but you do wonder where the depth is going to come from yeah in that case yeah no definitely I mean actually yeah other people have said exactly the same sort of thing that you need that that life experience to yeah to to create believable scenarios, I think sometimes, but yeah, believable, believable characters yeah, as well. I think exactly, that, yeah. you, know, you know, I think people talk about write what you know, and if you take that in a literal sense, it can be fairly disastrous mm-hmm. advice. But if you take it in a in a more nu- uh, nuanced sense, and I think it's exactly right. I think mm-hmm. it's not about occupations that you've known or, or specific settings or or industries or anything like that. It's about characters you've known. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's not everyone's been to space, but everyone has met someone who's a bit of an arse or something. You can put a character like that in a sci-fi story and you can use that as your experience, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's about emotions you've known and life experience you've known and people that you've known that you can amalgamate and composite and disguise and, and stick them in a, <laughs> in a script. I think... Uh, so, no, I, I, I do... I do think there's lots of examples of brilliant writers who have gone off and had very, very different, diverse lives and then worked their way round to writing. Mm-hmm. And is it right that you were first published in Dundee United fanzine? Was that the first thing you were published in? Yeah, yeah, Dundee United fanzine. Like when, <laughs> when the Hoodoo Comes, uh, which was a Steely Dan song title which referred to Dundee United's habit of losing Scottish yeah. Cup finals at half. No, that was really exciting. Um, there was some great Dundee United, it's brilliant fanzines, and there was a, another fantastic one called The Final Hurdle. And I just I read When the Hoodie Comes, I think I got the first edition, and, and they said, if you're looking for writers and contributors, I was 13 when I wrote to them and badgered them and sent them all sorts of nonsense, and they printed some of it, and I, put, I sold outside Tannadice with them. It was, But see, my name under that contributor list was just was yeah, absolutely I remember being at the game as well watching I'd written this um I'd taken a Roy of the Rovers comic strip and I'd tipexed out the dialogue and written in fairly libelous stuff about some Dundee players 
was in the shed and I, I could see a guy, I could see this guy reading, reading the fanzine and then turning the page to that and reading it and, and giving a very, very small Dundonian laugh. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was a brilliant moment. <laughs> so, uh, brilliant. It was really, that was really exciting. Yeah, well, I think every writer wants some feedback, wants to get that positive feedback. So even yeah. that, at that early stage, obviously, was good. And you, after university, did you go on to become a journalist? Is that what you did, first of all? Well, no, I went to... Uh, so through university, I wrote for uh, football magazines, um, fanzines and things. And then when I went after university in 2000, I went moved to London... And I worked as a in a couple of kind of advertising companies and pretty menial graduate positions, and this was when the internet was starting to kind of get a bit more organised. And some there were some really good football websites in those early days in the internet. And I wrote for a few of them. There's one called From the Terrace, uh, Football Three Six Five, and I wrote kind of humour pieces for them when I was supposed to be doing my normal job. And then I wrote uh, a couple of magazine freelance pieces 442 my first big article was a, a Dundee United ex former Dundee United player I knew called Ralph Milne who was a, a sadly passed away and was a real character and he was he had a fairly notorious short career at Manchester United and I I took him back there for the first time since he left and wrote a kind of big a big feature for 442 and that was really exciting because I think that was that felt made me feel like I could sort of do that and take the step from websites to magazines but it also gave me a a piece to show other people because I didn't I've never to this day I don't have any journalistic qualifications so I I kind of managed to graduate to magazines and then I was hating doing the the job I did and it it just wasn't wasn't for me and I knew that I wanted to try and be a writer Um, and I went away so I went traveling around the world uh, and while doing so I managed to set up and sell a few more bits of football writing interviewing uh, people around the world and different kind of funny, interesting stories around football to a few magazines. And then when I came back from that, I, I moved back to Edinburgh. And I think it was, well, I would have been uh, about 23, 24. And I, I just, at that point, I thought, well, I'm just going to take the plunge and, and, and do try and go for it. And I worked in a few pubs in Edinburgh to kind of uh, cover myself financially. And while doing so, slowly, slowly start to get freelance journalism work. So uh, Scotsman and Scotland and Sunday and the Herald, I, I, by doing these bits and pieces of football writing, they put me on the rotor to do match reports. So that was the first journalism I did, and I absolutely loved that. It was, it's, first of all, as a football fan and getting to sit in the press box and yeah. go to the post-manager interviews, but it was a brilliant writing discipline because you had... Um, you know, I was started off doing a lot of kind of lower division games, so you'd only have maybe three or four hundred words to tell a really uh, interesting version of what you've just seen. You had to file it by, I think, twenty minutes after the final whistle. Oh, wow. I was just, it was just on the cusp of um, of it all being internet only, so I was phoning it in. So I was phoning in the match report, and it was getting taken down by the copy team. And it was really exciting, you know, and, and so to just for your storytelling, really, and you're, yeah. you're trying to tell the story of this 90-minute football game, writing it as you go. Um, and it, and there was a couple of times where I did a match where there was a last-minute goal and, you know, you changes the whole, you've, yeah. I've changed the whole thing, so you then you have to change your whole narrative in, in 20 minutes and go back and re, particularly rewrite that opening section. So... I absolutely loved that. Loved that job. I couldn't. It felt such a, a privilege as a big uh, football fan, mm-hmm. and also a huge part of those newspapers. You know, particularly the Scotland yeah. and Sunday. Which, when I was a, t- a teenager, the Scotland and Sunday had brilliant uh, writers uh, writing for it. I remember Graham Spears had uh, the Sports Diary, which was all very humour driven and things. So, so that was great. So anyway, got match reports. Slowly made my way into them, letting me go and interview players and do features and things uh so I, I used to do a bit of that and then from there i managed to get work for the kind of men's magazines fhm and maxim in particular and a bit for loaded uh and it was just 
interesting stories, feature writing, you know, yeah. little snippets I'd find in newspapers and think, oh, that could be something bigger. And, and would you pitch this? Would you write them and say, I've got, I've seen this article, I've sparked something, I want to do a story on this type thing? Yeah, that's all, all I was doing. So I was, um, and again, great a great skill to learn how to pitch a story. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what this business is all about at any level. And, uh, you know, writing a sort of one-pager of why I think this would be a great 3,000-word article and, and sending that in. And uh, and also just being quite self-driven with it and a bit of an entrepreneur with it. And, you know, I wrote for a couple of American magazines again, which I just approached with samples and found out email addresses of editors. And it was the sort of last um, hurrah for freelance journalism, to be honest, when I was doing it. It was still, particularly America, there was still... Um, quite a lot of budget for good long form journalism. So, so has that whole market changed now then for people who wanted to go into that area now? Is it completely different? I think it's much, much more difficult to be honest. Um, I mean, I remember I used to do a bit for the Guardian, uh, Guardian Weekend, doing right, kind of longer features for them. And even in the time I did uh, wrote for them possibly maybe over four or five years, I think the, the rates fell by potentially... I don't know, maybe forty percent or so. Wow. You know, um, so it was, it was, it was, um, it was a shrinking market. I mean, I wrote for a succession of lads mags that kept going bust, <laughs> and, and uh, or they'd come back with a slightly different name after being sort of vulture capital funds would come in and buy them. I mean, I wrote for one magazine front where it was just hilarious. Every every month when you got paid, it was a different company name that was paying you. <laughs> um, it was it was a wild ride though. It was great fun, really f- uh, fun, interesting stuff. I used to do a lot of behind the scenes features with bands and and things like that. And it was um, so I really enjoyed it. It was um, so that so I kind of slowly I worked less in the pub and more in the in the in the, in the journalism and um, having a lot of fun. And then when so I think I was twenty eight when my first book was published. Um, and that was just a result of the, of the journalism. I found this uh, little snippet in the Scotsman. Was it the Scotsman? I think saying that this uh, Glaswegian teenager had been convicted of stealing two million pounds in credit card fraud and just spending it okay. going around the world. And his name was Elliot Castro. And I did what I usually did, which was work out right how can I get to that guy to get an interview and then try and sell it to a magazine. So. Uh, I knew he'd been, I think he'd been at Staines Court or something. So phoned the court and they said, well, anyone from here gets sent straight to Wormwood Scrubs. So I wrote to Wormwood Scrubs just with no prisoner name, just his name. And he wrote back to me and um, he then got moved. He got moved to Ford Open Prison in Sussex. And I had sold that idea to Maxi Magazine, went and interviewed him. And again, this was good. You know, this is when the magazine still had kind of 3,000 word articles. Yeah. So it was. Yeah. You could really get into a story and speak to other people around him and give it a bit of colour and, and, and depth like that. So so I wrote it for Maxime and then I sent that article. And this is still something writers could do, definitely. I took that article. I said, well, I thought this could be a book. Um, and I sent it with some other samples to literary agents, which is definitely the first place to start if you want to write a book. And I just remember thinking, right, I'm going to write, I'm going to send this to a hundred literary agents. I'm going to make myself do that. And, you know, I had to work hard just to find the addresses yeah. and everything. Else. And I did it. I did it over a few weeks period. And I think I heard back from, I don't know, I mean, in terms of the positive responses, I think there was two or three. And then there was one who ultimately said that he'd, um, he'd sign me and send out. It was a big proposal. So, so did they sign you on the back of, yeah, not on the, you had the magazine article, but you didn't have, you know, the usual thing of three chapters and a synopsis and all that sort of thing. Instead, it was more a pitch that he signed you on. He signed me on the pitch, but then he made me write a couple of chapters right. before we went before we went out to publishers. So he signed, yeah, he signed me on the basis of the pitch and some writing samples. But, you know, for these people, they're not, you know, the only... Signing you is, is a kind of pretty vague term, really. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of committing that, okay, we'll send out this big proposal and see how we do, and, you know. Um, so it's not a huge commitment from the end, and he could see he he had a chance of selling the book. But he was brilliant, and he's still my book agent. He, was, uh, he helped shape it for me, and we sent it out. And uh, Elliot was still, was still in prison when we sent it out. 
and Macmillan. We had we got down to three or four publishers that were really keen. And one by one, they just started to get a bit nervous about uh, yeah. what were they what were they glorifying this and yeah. what, um, elevating a character who's a who'd been a professional criminal for a while. And we kept saying, "Look, he's a nice <laughs> he's a nice guy." I mean, we were, we were, we were a, bit, a bit more to our argument than that, but that's what it boiled down to because they're thinking in terms of publicity sense and. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to put this guy forward for interviews and things. Anyway, so I got down to just Macmillan. All the others had sort of panicked a bit and uh, run for the hills. So they said, well, we really have to meet him. And so uh, Elliot got out of prison, got his travel pass from the prison, which took him as far as Marlebin, changed into a suit on the train, which he'd been wearing when he'd been arrested. <laughs> and uh, me and him got a taxi with David, with our literary agent, to, to Macmillan. And I met this like eight people there and all their different departments. And Elliot just uh, just just sort of ran, ran the meeting. Elliot <laughs> was on board with this the whole time. He knew the book was being written and he wanted you to write yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but he was really happy with the Maxim article. And he, okay. I think he quite fancied. He was only a young lad at that time. He fancied the idea of getting a bit of notoriety probably. And um, yeah. and we did the book together. And um, So when he came and he was just effortlessly charming and professional and he'd been in prison that morning uh, and I said uh, I remember saying to him after God that was uh, that was impressive and he said well you know I was a professional con man Neil <laughs> so, uh, like Wolf of Wall Street style that kind of you know guy who's done some bad stuff but becomes a bit of a legend etc yeah it was great it was and I think it's a decent book in terms of that genre and we we did pretty well we got Serializing the Guardian, it sold well. It sold around the world a few places, and sold the film rights. Um, I think we sold the film rights three times over the years, and we got very close. I don't think it was very. It was a, the story was in terms when you boil it down, it feels like very similar to Catch Me If You Can. Okay, and I think that probably didn't help us when it came to the film. People thought it'd be a sort of uh, lower budget British version of the story. I think it's a more interesting story, to be honest, because he, he was a fascinating, well, he is, he's a fascinating man, Elliot. He's, he's very, very conventional life he lives now, but he he was a, he's a, a really nice bloke, but he was from very working class Glasgow. He bullied relentlessly. He was gay, and uh, but had a very uh, a difficult relationship with his father as a young man, and it was um, it's, it's and, and, and then you know, then you put in all the great drama around the, the frauds mm-hmm. he was doing. So I don't know. There's still lingering interest. So we'll see if anything ever happens to it. But anyway, that was my first book. So that was I think I was 28 at the time. Mm-hmm. And then oh. um, your first fiction novel was "Let Them Come Through." Is that right? Yeah. And so how, wrote, how did that um, come about? Well, I was just uh, I wanted to, I just wanted to write a novel, and I was looking for what to, a kind of subject to light on and. I went with <laughs> went with my friends to watch Derek Akora, who oh, yeah. recently died. Uh, yeah. Probably listening to this, of course. But he, uh, <laughs> he, uh, I went to see him in Edinburgh uh, with a few friends, and it was just so funny. Uh, it, he was it's just such a brilliantly unapologetic scam artist. And but, yeah, as I wonder, before you go and see this, I mean, does, is everyone in on the joke that this guy? No, not, no, they're, they're not really believe it. It's strange. They're, they're, they were huge fans, and they were completely, they were completely besotted with him, and utterly assured that he was he he could he could do what he said he could do. But at the same time, he would sometimes make little jokes and mistakes, and they would enjoy that as well. So <laughs> he, just, he, got, he got away with murder. I remember the funny thing that night was um, there was a woman. We're at the playhouse in Edinburgh. And there was a woman on the top deck, and he was chatting to her. And he, he'd done his usual. Um, is there a Derek or a David or a Damien until someone puts up hand and then so she was said, Oh, that's I think that's my ex-husband. So he was calling up to her and she was had a little mic to speak down and he was saying, Oh, how long's how long's Derek been passed? And she said, Oh, it's a few years now. And so Derek and, and anyway, so Derek's going on about her ex-husband and he said, What's your name? She went, Mate, it's Mary, it's Mary, Derek. And she and he went on. Mary, I can uh, hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm looking into your life. I can see everything about you and your experiences and your lovely lady, Mary. Oh, thank you, Derek. Thank you, Derek. And she goes, and he got to the end and he said, 
Wonderful, Mary. Wonderful speech. Stand up, Mary. Round of applause. Mary. She went, no, no, Dad. No, no. She went, you went, oh, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous, Mary. She went, no, 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 no. You went, come on, Mary. I know everything about you. You deserve it. Stand up. She went, no, she went I'm, in, I'm in a wheelchair, Derek. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> uh, it was priceless. So anyway, from that evening, I thought, well, I think I want to write one about a medium. So that's what let them come through. Became and uh, and I've written two novels that and I wrote not, not another called called San Carlos, based on Ibiza. And it's funny; it's they're incredibly difficult things to do. Uh, write as a writing exercise a novel. It's much much harder than a than a screenplay, um, and I would I have no desire to ever write another one again. Uh, but I'm very proud of the two that I've, I've written. I think I think they both um, both both hold together. But it's it's also in a pragmatic sense, it's a tough tough old game writing writing books. Even then, it was hard, and it's got even harder. And you know, let them come through. What was put out by Serpent's Tale, which was this. Um, publisher it was a sort of indie publisher that was i think half owned by one of the bigger ones and i had this a fantastic artistic reputation and um this really idiosyncratic owner so it was a lovely man and um it's that's the kind of publisher and the kind of book that could have been a real sort of cult hit and kind of really grown at a bit of and it just and it, and it just didn't and then my second novel was with jonathan kate irvin's publisher irvin welsh's publisher at, um, at random house and yeah. You know, and that was a sort of thrillery book, fairly commercial. Um, yeah, again, sorry, it was kind of blinking, you miss it. And then that's the, my, my experiences with both my novels. And I don't, well, I might be blinded by it, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of the quality of the book, my novels. That's the thing. It's, you just, you have so many things have to come together for a novel to kind of catch fire. And it's even harder now with newspapers of um, cut them. That, that, that's what other authors have told us as well. You know, they, they've said it's, these days especially a lot of it is down to whether they spend money marketing the book and if they don't then it can be the greatest book in the world but it will just sit on the shelf and people it will pass people by um, there's just so much being published that it's difficult to to get yeah. word out there to get people to buy it sort of a thing and I suppose the Kindle store is a blessing and a curse because it, it means yeah. everyone can write a book but it, it means everyone can write a book and you've got tons more stuff to sift through I suppose now than you did 20 years ago yeah marketing and distribution you know it's um, Watersons could just decide they don't fancy a book and, and yeah. hardly hardly order any and you're in trouble and that's the thing. I mean, I just feel that. I mean, I prefer writing TV anyway. But if you write a if you write a TV show and it's going to go into production, and you know kind of roughly what slot it's going to get, you know roughly what viewing figures it will get, and you know it'll get decent coverage in terms of reviews, and that makes some sort of kind of cultural impact and and everything else. You write a novel; it's just not the case. You finish it and you chuck it into an abyss and hope it kind of re- resurfaces somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's. Um, so, I mean, some people, I think, are just, that's what they want to do as writers, and that's fair play to them. And it's, uh, but it's, it's yeah, yeah I, I'm very, very proud of having written two novels, because particularly the second one I find incredibly difficult to do. But, yeah, it's not something I'm, I've currently got any great desire to do again. I mean, the, the, I suppose one of the main differences with a novel and a, a screenplay for TV or film is that the novel ultimately is... You know, it's it's your story. Obviously, you'll get input from editors and stuff. But whereas with TV and especially, I think the bigger the film gets, probably the more you've got people coming in and saying, "Can you? Ch- I think this should be this." You know, you get the notes as they say, sort of a thing. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's what some some others have said. That you know, it it becomes less your story sometimes when you pass it when it has to pass through so many hands. Yeah, well, I think notes, um, yeah, certainly with a novel, you're going to be more light touch in an editorial input because it's such a vast canvas that no one's ever going to have as much of a grip of the whole thing as the author. So it'd be more, sort of my experience, more sort of general little touches of notes that you can consider. But I think with, with script writing, the thing about notes is I think you have to be careful because a lot of, Emerging writers or people who would like to get into script writing, sometimes you speak to them or they, they drop you a line, and their big thing is, oh, I don't want 
don't know, don't want people to interfere with the mm-hmm. vision or something. Yeah. And I think it comes from some, to be honest, I think, frankly, it does come from a couple of podcasts as well. Like, there's a couple of brilliant writing podcasts, but they're by maybe hosted by kind of very successful screenwriters yeah. and they'll, they'll, they'll talk occasionally disparagingly about producers' notes or input. And they're kind of in a position to do that. Yeah. But, I think, I, I, but I think for me, I've become a much better screenwriter because of getting given notes, you know, uh, along the way. Um, and I think you should not fear that part of the process. It can it can go either way without doubt, and you have to you have to try and work with producers that you trust creatively, uh, that you feel you that have an ability to give notes without it becoming a difficult and strained part of the process, and other actually make it a positive part of the process. Um, and you just have to have the confidence in yourself not to be defensive. That's the other yeah. thing, right? with new writers and I was definitely like that you're you're kind of because you're a bit insecure your reaction is to become a bit defensive and Mm -hmm. uh, a bit more or less receptive to other people's opinion on your work whereas once you become more confident in your writing perversely you're willing to hear more people's opinions on your work because you know that you'll just take what you think's right and Mm -hmm. and you're confident in, in just you know you're confident enough to say no to anything else and you can back it up and your reasons behind it. And I think that, you know, I've worked with some um, very difficult producers when it comes to notes. I've had, I've had my share of horrendous war stories on that, on that front. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I've done quite a lot of American developments and there's a couple of them that are very hard. Um, but by and large, now I'm at the stage where I've got, proper pals who are very good producers that I can choose to work with and then it's not hard. I mean, I think you know you're in a good relationship with your producer when you stand off a script that you know they'll read and come back with notes and you're looking forward to hearing their notes. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Yes. That, and, that, and, and, and in the past, I've been in a situation where I've sent off a script and almost immediately felt sick at thinking, what the fuck's going to come yeah. back here? <laughs> Both in terms of quality of note and the way it was delivered and the, you know how strained the conversation was going to be. Whereas, by and large, yeah, now certainly I, I send it off and think, oh, I'm really looking forward to their thoughts on mm-hmm. this because I know that they'll, I know they'll have some thoughts that will make it better. That's the thing. Yeah. Uh, so don't fear notes at all. Just uh, try and be careful in who's going to be giving you them. Uh-huh. And, and how did you make that jump then in, in, from the books into the world, world of script writing? Uh, well, I wrote the Bob Servant books. And... <laughs> I did want to ask about them because I, I, I found him on Twitter. I think he's got he's quite massive on Twitter, and uh, he's quite a character. <laughs> For those who don't know, he's like a cheeseburger tycoon. I think he's cheeseburger Spengali. I think. He's <laughs> and are you are you writing the 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 tweets on 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 that account? I'm afraid so. Yeah, <laughs> I keep meaning to. Uh... I keep meaning to delete it, uh, but then Michael McKean followed him, and I thought, well, I can't delete it now. But, uh, is, uh, no, it's a good outlet for my kind of madder thoughts. But with Bob Selwyn, I um, I wrote the. Uh, I just started replying to spam emails, pretending to be this Londonian <laughs> cheeseburger van owner called Bob Servant. I can't particularly remember why. I was single at the time. <laughs> Uh, the, the, um, and it was just, and then I, I hired my literary agent because I'd done the Elliot Castro book by this point. I think I'd done my novel as well, actually, and let them come through. And I shared a few with him, and he said, "Oh, this would be a good sort of Christmas book." And uh, and that was it. So I ended up doing four Bob Seven books. I did two books of the email exchanges. I wrote his biography, Hero of Dundee. And then the last book was Ask Bob, which was sort of questions from readers and fans to for Bob to answer. But the uh, so I wrote so I wrote these Bob Seven books, and I um, I mean this is the thing about uh, having a kind of creative career. There's things like hard work and ability, but luck luck has to be part of it, without any doubt. And hopefully, you're in a position to take advantage of it. And I the delete this at your peril. The first Bob Seven book had come out. And it got published by, initially got published by a small London publisher who were very good people, but they just didn't really know what to do with this 
book of uh, email exchanges with a fictional cheeseburger van, <laughs> understandably. So it, it kind of it, it kind of came and went pretty quickly in terms of that first publication, and then it was out of print. And then I was living in New York at the time, working as a journalist, and I'd, um, I think I'd started going to the screenwriting course at that time. But I got uh, two things happened very quickly to get um, one after another, where one of them was I got uh, an email from a friend who said, have you seen Esquire magazine? And Esquire had done an article where they'd asked authors to name their funniest book ever written. And it was all these really kind of big successful authors. I remember Brett Easton Ellis was there and a few others. And, and they're all they're all talking about kind of literary comedic fiction and, and, and such like. And then Irvin Welsh got asked and he said, delete this at your peril by Bob Servan. <laughs> and I had no idea that he'd been given a copy of this book. It'd been out of print for about a year. And it was in Esquire magazine with this great kind of glowing quote from Irvin. So Brilliant. as a result of that, I uh, I think I'd gone to, I went back to a Scottish publisher, Berlin, and they republished it off the back, really, of that of that quote. And um, then it had this really much bigger second life, and it got to BBC Scotland, and Owen Bell, the producer of BBC Scotland, got in touch with me and said, reel off the book, have you considered adapting the character for radio or possibly television? And that begin, began the process of the... Of the adaptation, and you had been to the uh, screenwriting school. You said in New York by this stage, is that right? Uh, yeah, I can't wait. The chronology, I can't quite work out. I, I think, I think it must have been about that because I came back from New York to do the radio series of Bob Servan, which was the first scripts I'd written, and I was kind of ready to come back to Scotland anyway. But I came back specifically to to record that series. Moved back to Edinburgh. Um, so yeah, they must have approached me when I was over there doing the doing the screenwriting course. And what did that course? You know, because there's there's sometimes a cynicism around you can't teach someone to write and all this sort of stuff. So what did that course help you with? How did it help you? It was it was really instructive. It was there was a fantastic teacher, an American screenwriter called Seth Donsky, and he um, he just broke it down and, and made it less scary, I suppose. For, for himself, it wasn't too. You know, it's a lot of structural stuff, and 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 um, it was really aiming you to write a film screenplay. So it was kind of on that world. But we talked a lot about oh, there's stuff I learned in that course that I definitely still use today. I think, I, and I think in in general, in terms of the screenwriting approach, in terms of being taught and and researching and reading, I, I would be a huge advocate of that because I think it's about soaking it all up you know and, and you do, often don't realize you've done so and i kind of read voraciously uh, that particularly in that period screenwriting books and um and i think the thing about screenwriting books is you should just read every single one you can because you'll take as much from a really bad screenwriting book as you'll take from a good one because you'll think well i don't agree with that and then you have to work out why you don't agree with it and then all these things all these things are doing that more academic approach is helping you to find your voice, that's the thing. And and so it's not this idea that you go through courses and read books and come out with this um, slightly robotic, um, generic approach. You you might do of that if, if you're just if you don't have anything within you to start. But if you're a natural writer, the more you do of these things, the more it's doing is helping you shape your voice. Because you might see something you agree with and you think, well, I think that's how I write anyway. But maybe if I do it like this, that'll make it a bit more structured and work. And, and again, you'll, you'll grow confident in your voice by being able to reject things you don't agree with. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I couldn't recommend that enough of immersing yourself at an early stage in a writing career and the in the more academic side of it. But certainly, specifically with that course, there was a lot. I mean, one of the biggest things I remember him saying was um, he just, he always wanted the inciting incident of a story to happen as quickly as possible in the script. And I remember him, um, people would be reading out the first 10 pages and he'd be sitting in the corner of the room saying, where is it? Where is it? As they got further and further into these 10 pages because he didn't feel that anything significant had happened yet. That, that, I probably took all the way to writing guilt, where the inciting incident is in the cold open of the of the first episode. Um, 
and then lots of stuff about character and and the actions of you know he used to he used to really take the piss out of um, people's actions in a script if they didn't make sense. And I remember him um, really taking the piss out of me when I said about airplanes falling out the sky out a window in an airport or something. And he was like, "That sounds like an that was a major disaster." And it was because I was trying to be lyrical about how airplanes were landing. He said. Just write planes landing. Right, okay. <laughs> and, you know, he, he concision, I think that's the other thing, being concise in a script. Um, he was relentless about that. And that's something that I think I'm decent at, um, of just being so concise. And I think that would be one of my bits of writing advice, definitely, in, in with your script, is evaluate every single line, every single word, and, and then extrapolate that out and every scene does it have to be there are there two scenes that could be composited into one and condensed into one is there two characters that could be condensed into one you know it's it's just boiling it down boiling it down boiling it down and um that's something i definitely took from and i think i took that from journalism as well actually where you yeah you have a, you have a word count and you try and squeeze yeah. as much story you can into it i mean i mean i think a lot of that i definitely you can see that in 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 your la- in your most recent show, Guilt. I think the first episode, so much happens in that first episode. You know, like forty five minutes or like an hour long, but you've got the incident, as you say, in the first ten seconds of the of the episode, and there's so many twists and things happen at like a lightning speed, and it really is, as you say, kind of paired back to the bare essentials, and it's 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 really well paced the whole way through. But but I think what the the difficulty with I think sometimes with a script, when they say, right, be concise, people get afraid that you can't... Um, have a character more Yeah, exactly. How, how do you do display the characters? But obviously, in that, if you write it properly, then you can get great characters, as there are in Guilt. You know, they're yeah. amazing characters uh, through, through, I don't know, showing, not telling, and all that sort of, sort of stuff. Yeah, well, what I, I mean, just now, like, what I find when I write a script is that I'll write the outline, which is very plot, really plot driven. It's just, and, and, and uh, often producers will say to me, it feels like there's a bit much going on. And then I know there's not, I know there's not going to, not only is there not too much going on, when I then put that outline into the script to, to start with, if I'm writing a one hour BBC script, mm-hmm. which you want to be about 60 to 65 pages, um, I'll probably be on about. 45 50 pages when i've written a first draft because that's just the plotting mm-hmm. and then it's when i go through and start adding character adding character right and i and that's when it spreads out to to the length so i think it's um when you when you're outlining make sure your plot works once you get that into a script start to enjoy the characters more and you'll find those find those moments you know and find character moments within story that's the that's the key as well don't have a scene where this is just about showing yeah. this side of the character you need to show that side of the character when it's making a story impact um and finding that balance between it but i think the other thing is think of plot is your is your structure you know and it, that's your skeleton to, to work off you know and that if, if that is nice and solid then you can, that's when you can relax and enjoy character more. But the plot has to be there first, because mm-hmm. otherwise you'll just end up with a script that wanders about and you think you're telling some great insight into the male psyche, but nothing's happened for eight pages, you know. I'm sure I've seen those TV programmes as well. <laughs> well. I think I've read a few. <laughs> and I think you'd, you'd, you'd said that you saw something like Fargo as a kind of inspiration almost for, for guilt, in a sense that has that kind of strong strong drama but with moments of, of kind of humour running through it and when you're writing I wondered when you're writing a comedy that's a kind of black humour how do you know how far to push push a joke or because or, it's you know with, with guilt there's someone getting run over there's funerals etc there's death how, how do you know where that line is and how far to push a joke and when something goes too far it has to be a character reacting in an honest way to a situation and within their reaction within their voice, they say something that you could construe as being funny. That's kind of how strict you have to be with it, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a character making a joke or saying, yeah. in inverted commas, a funny line. And that just doesn't do anything for the story and it takes you out of the story. And it needs to be, this character 
you know, they're so angry with another cancer, they're going to employ fairly dark humour against them. Or they're so frustrated with a situation or desperate in a situation, they're going to say something that that is funny because you're you're seeing it's a mirror, it's a, it's, it's a little window, sorry, into their into their kind of desperation or frustration. And I think that's the thing. And and also, um, Brian Cox said an interesting thing to me when he was shooting Succession, which um, is such a fantastic show. Um, and they often will, because it's got writers who are brilliant with drama and comedy, often I think on the day they'll punch it up a bit and they'll have a few different alts of kind of funnier lines that they'll maybe then reduce down in the edit. And Brian said, you know, I just always think you want to have, with a drama, you can have one funny line in a scene, you know, because that that he feels that's the that's the balance because then you're still being the scene's still being dramatically driven, but you have that little nuance within it. And um, I, I've, he told me that a couple of years ago when he was filming it, and I've thought about that a lot, um, and I try to kind of enact that a bit myself. So it should you just yeah, it's just but it's getting that interwoven within it. I think the thing that I always struggle with with a lot of British uh, drama is when you've just got six hours of pious, yeah. dry <laughs> people staring at rain-spattered windows and, and, and it's just, it's it's painful you know, it's it's not, and it it's less real, that's the thing. Yeah, I, mean, I was about not... to say that, yeah, it makes it real people do have dark humour, we'll see yeah. we'll see things that are maybe inappropriately funny at, in real life so it, it does definitely make it more realistic, I think. Exactly, like Garrow's Garrow's humour yeah. or get getting the giggles at a funeral you know these are the that that's part of the human condition and i think in maybe particularly scottish way so no i think humor should be part of a should just be part of a story and it should be part of a character but yeah you have to make sure you 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 pair it back um to to not feel it's overwhelming ever overwhelming a moment and certainly should never be creating a situation in a dramatic script and you're doing so because you think it's going to be funny mm-hmm. yeah. this is going to be a funny situation for the character to be in or they will come out with a funny summary of what's happened i think it has to be purely dramatically built show and then within it when you're testing your character in that moment about how they might react don't be scared of thinking well i think they'd actually mm-hmm. say something here that could be that could be could be quite funny and make sure you don't have a character that's purely there for comedic effects yeah, or comedy sidekick yeah you never think, oh, and that character will be funny. That's not. That should never be a starting point for involving a character in a story. It's what do they bring to it dramatically? Um, yeah. So just getting that right mix. But I, I kind of feel with guilt. It was watching the first series. Is that the episode one? I think was probably a bit, a bit more comedic than I would maybe have written it now. Okay. Um, and I think episode three and four were maybe a, just a touch more dramatic. More dramatic. I think we'd lost a, a bit of the humour towards them, just as the story. Mm-hmm. I think it made sense because the story was escalating. Yeah. I think episode three was probably about the right blend because it's such a, a fine balance. Um, but the other thing is that these lighter moments will be the first thing that goes in an edit when you're up against it time-wise. So I think that's what happened in three and four. I think we were quite a bit over and we just had to keep paring it back, paring it back, and you end up just really getting down to the nuts and bolts of the story, which does give it a great pace. And you were also exec producer for Guilt as well. Um, what did that involve? It just gives you a little bit more involvement, um, and it maybe puts a little bit more weight to your voice on a kind of collegiate sense. Um it's a strange thing with that in terms of British TV and American TV. It's obviously very different. In American TV, you might have never written anything at all. You get a show into production and you're not only an exec producer, you're expected to be the showrunner. And yeah. um, that's just the role of the writer over there. And whereas here, you have to really scrap to get, particularly when you start your career, by and large, you do really have to fight to get involvement beyond the scripts and significant involvement. And, and, and you know, it's it's it, it's very easy, I think, as an emerging writer here, you make your first thing to think, well, everyone else knows what they're doing and I'm, I don't want to, you know, tread any toes or look egotistical yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. And that's kind of bollocks, really. I think you, you have to learn your craft and you, you've got to make sure you let people do their jobs and realise where the line is and all that. But 
ideally you get to a position which I'm fortunate enough to have gotten now where you you're just involved across the process in a very respectful way you know people have to be allowed to to do their jobs and the director in particular needs to be allowed to um, take the lead when you get to production but no I'm, I'm across everything I'm across not in a domineering sense but I've got a voice from you know, casting to I, I was going to ask because obviously um, Mark Bonner was in Eric Ernie and me is that was that a relationship that you had built up through that and you wanted him in guilt as well? Yeah, yeah. so that was that was um, kind of how Mark came on board. And then, but then Robbie McKillop, the director, who did a, such a brilliant job with it, he came in and cast the vast majority of the characters with um, brilliant casting director up in Glasgow. And, 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 and they um, found some amazing suggestions for the different, for the different parts. So... And then I, I go to the set um, when I think I could be useful, if it's a day where there's a big old dramatic scene getting filmed or if there's maybe something that we didn't quite nail in rehearsal and we thought would be good to be there on the day. Um, but, I mean, with comedy, I'd be in the set all the time because you're tweaking lines and yeah. trying out different things. But with drama, I try not to go, really. Um, you, you know, I get rushes with the other producers and... Um, yeah, they need to be. They need to feel the freedom that they can get on with it, and the director needs to be able to form his own relationship with the with the actors without you kind of lurking about. So it's a bit of a balance, and it comes down to personalities. And again, it's something that can be really productive and positive, and a good laugh and collegiate, or can be torturous yeah. if you if the teams are right. But uh, the guilt was very much um, the positive end of the spectrum, so it's great. And and am I right in saying that at the moment you're working on some scripts for US? And is, is that a very different feel to when you write for the UK? Uh, I've got yeah, I'm developing various things. One in America. It's it again. It just depends on the producers. I've done, I, I've done some American scripts that were with the real mainstream broadcast networks, um, and that was pretty tough going. It was very well remunerated, but it was uh, it was quite difficult in terms of the kind of notes process. Uh, and then I've done kind of a couple more cable scripts over there that I really enjoyed. Um, and now I'm doing, yeah, again, a kind of cable half-hour thing. I'm doing two, two over there, just scripts. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And, uh, and there are various things here as well. So it's... Um, and there's a lot of really, really smart American producers that are, that are brilliant to work with. And again, I've, I think I've learned... And this is the other thing is that I think I've probably learned something from every development mm-hmm. I've done or every I've written, even if those experiences have been bad, take the lesson out of it, you know, in terms of that's not the kind of thing I want to write, or it's not maybe that's certainly not maybe a producer I want to work with again, or why did the why did the script not quite work, you know? Uh, and, and again, be honest with your own feelings within it and and take some learnings from that. So you know, I work I've I work kind of very regularly with a kind of small set of producers now and I think I find that kind of easier. Is it important to you to um, kind of like launch your own uh, show with your own book that you've written yourself as opposed to, you know, slotting into a show that's already running in a writer's room perhaps in American style? Is that that harder to do for you? Yeah, I don't don't think I'd really want to do that, to be honest. I mean, I think if it was an absolutely brilliant show that I really, really loved uh, and, you know, there was amazing writers in the room that I thought I'd really learn from and a great showrunner, then I think, I'd, you know, that might be something that I would definitely uh, be interested in chatting about. But by and large, I've got no real interest in joining writing rooms and other shows. I, I like creating creating shows. Um, I like, like writing myself. Um, I think it probably comes from writing books to start with as well. You, mm. you, you kind of get used to that individual approach. Um but no, for me, the, a lot of the joy is, is in creating the show and from a very embryonic idea and building it out from there. And when you're doing something like that, when you pitch it, are you, for example, for Guilt, do you pitch it to the BBC or do you pitch it to a production company that then take it to the BBC or whatever channel it ends up on kind of a thing? Yeah, by and large, you'll develop an idea with a production company and you'll... Well, historically, you'd write a you'd write a sort of treatment about the show and send it off to the networks and see if they were interested in commissioning a script. Increasingly, with drama, production companies are actually commissioning the scripts themselves, 
because the escorts and Amazon and Netflix and so on, they, they really want want you to have a script when you go to them, if not an episode two and if not an, an actor attached. So they're sort of making that demands of production companies and as a result, a lot of them, yeah, the, the majority of the script commissions I get now are actually from, from production companies and before you even go to the broadcasters. Okay. Um, so that that's a bit of a sea change in the last in the last few years, and I think it's great for writers because I can take on a lot more commissions basically. Because before, if I had if I had a project to the BBC that they commissioned a script for, I could probably get one more out of them before it become a bit weird, and they'd be like, "Well, we can't commission them. You know, we've got still got two things in development." Whereas now, you know, I can have almost I can well, I can almost get as many commissions as I want. Uh, from production companies and then write them one after another and then, then they pitch them to this in this exciting new world of maybe a dozen a dozen possible homes in the UK and the States. That's amazing. And so yeah. you, you've, you're said you're working on a lot of stuff. Is there anything that's going to be coming out quite soon? Uh, well, we'll see. As always, it's, uh, you never know what's going to make it through to production. Yeah. Imagine you've got quite a lot of stuff that you kind of, you put it up there and you have to sit back and wait two, three months to, to know if it goes, it goes any further. Yeah, well, I, I just write back to back on scripts. And when they, when you send them off for consideration for production, I just kind of I see it as an unlikely bonus, to be honest. It's just, uh, I just write one after another and, 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 yeah, crack on with it, really. I think you've just got to put the work in. And I, I think production, you, you should, you should, uh, you see production as, something that would be lovely if it happened but you assume it won't and i think if you take that attitude then you can work work consistently because you just make sure you're taking on enough productions to have a year of writing otherwise would you ever go back to writing a book again or another form of form of writing i don't think so no not not for now i I really really love writing scripts i think i really enjoy it i don't find it in any way as daunting as I used to do writing novels, for example. And I like working with other people, you know, and the thing about scripts is quite quickly you'll be working with your editorial producer and then obviously if you get to production, you get to work with exciting actors and, and brilliant directors and editors and, and everyone else. It's, I really enjoy the, the, the team aspect of, of making television. book that you're in i just reread uh, uh, stuart a life backwards because i was on radio four on, on a good read they asked me to come on and talk about one of my favorite books and um it's absolutely brilliant stuart a life backwards by alexander masters it's a true story of a homeless man in cambridge but it's um i'd heavily recommend that Am I right? Am I might be totally wrong. Was that made into a TV version? Yeah, made into I think HBO and and Sky or some made it into with uh, Cumberbatch and Tom Hardy. I think. Yeah, yeah that wasn't, that wasn't gonna be. I've not actually seen it or read it, but I'll have to have a look at that. I've not seen the t- the adaptation, but the book is uh, the book is brilliant. Oh, cool. Um, what was the last film you watched? Oh, what did I watch? I'm working my way through screeners just now. It, it was uh, I think I watched 1917 last. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was a. I, I thought that was a fantastic film. Do you, do you like it or are you? Yeah, it was a great. Yeah, oh, it was such a great ride, wasn't it? it was, yeah. Uh, it was so I, when I heard about the you know the whole thing's filmed in like it's one continuous shot, part you kind of thinks is a bit of a gimmick, but I thought it actually added a lot of tension to it because because you know the camera just can't cut away and you're always just forced to watch what's happening. Yeah. That was impressive. None of the actors went to the toilet as well. How did they manage that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you a lot of the screeners because are you, are you getting a chance to vote for stuff? Uh, yeah, I'm in the, a couple, in the Writers Guild uh, in the States and here as well. So, again, um, yeah, it's a lovely flurry in sort of late autumn where the post day brings me all the... Uh, all, all the films. So it's... Um, but no, I've, I'm on the Writers Guild TV committee as well, so kind of vote in their awards too, but... Do they uh, so they still send that out physically rather than streaming it? Yeah, but it seems incredibly wasteful, especially mm-hmm. when it's that you've got no intention of watching. But I, th- I think they're slowly shifting over. I, I noticed this year, I got quite a few emails with with links to digital screeners and things as well. And what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching at the moment? 
Uh, well, um, my wife and I are working our way back through the West Wing again for I think about the third, third time in the last ten years. But it's uh, it's just brilliant. I just, I mean, well, we've now reached the later series when Sorkin's gone, and that is it's a big, fairly significant step step yeah. down quality. But those early early series of the West Wings that Aaron Sorkin, um, you know, taking it was they're just. Uh, just brilliant. I think it's the best writing on yeah. television in my that I've kind of seen in my lifetime. Fan of him, although I have to say, the first four seasons when he's involved, I think are fantastic. That he leaves, and I think five, four, yeah. But I have to say, I thought six and seven were possibly my favourite of the the two seasons of the whole show. Oh, right. That, but I loved the whole the running for the real the election for the next guy, and that the, what they did they did with that. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. You just feel you just feel you can just relax the Sorkin's West Wing as yeah. you just know you're in these masterful hands in terms of dialogue and, yeah. and character. It's um it's it's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, going back through that just now, which is a, a rare joy. Nice. I think I read an interesting quote that he said about the West Wing, which was he's never watched a single episode from, from when he left. And he said either one or two things happen, you watch it and it's worse than what you did and you think oh, and, and you feel crap or it's much better than what you did and, and you feel crap so he said I'll just feel crap either way so I'll just leave it <laughs> yeah. he said he, one, of his great, one of his great bits of writing advice is um, if you want to have a scene someone needs to want something someone needs to want to stop them having it and then you've got a scene um, which is I think very excellent advice um, and very, very last thing, it's a quick fire either or answer. Uh, so I'll jump in first with uh, Succession or Fargo. Mm. I'd say Succession above the Fargo TV series and maybe a dead heat in the film. So that's not very quick fire. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, UK crime drama or US crime drama? Probably US. Um, TV or cinema? TV. Uh, a real better, book or a... better wine? You can drink better wine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, a real book or an ebook? Real book. I, I've never read an ebook. Okay. Never. No. Uh, and last one is fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Takeaway. Especially, <laughs> especially at the moment. <laughs> See, now I just want to become a writer so I can get lots of screeners sent to me <laughs> every year. All the all the Oscar contenders and things like that. Although I can't believe they still send them out physically, as, as Neil was it saying. Does, in, this, in this day and age, it does seem a bit nuts that you can't just say, here's a code. Yeah, exactly. Although I suppose maybe... The, but then uh, the piracy existed before when they were sending out on videotape. Yeah, and that's DVDs, true. So yeah. I'm not sure where that is. But... Um, but I thought that was a really good chat with Neil. I thought he had a lot of hints and tips there. Yeah, a really, a really fun guy. You know, yeah. I think is you can tell why he uses humour so well because he's he's naturally very good at that, and uh, and that does shine through in his work. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely and, does. And some interesting points he had about reading every screenwriting book you, you can find, even if they're bad, because as he says, you do take something away from everything you read, whether it's positive or negative, and that's always a learning experience. Yeah, I think that's right. Even if. Even if you read a thing and it, you say that is completely wrong, then it's taking you a step forward and, as, yeah. he, as he said, and finding your own voice as, as to how you want to write. So. Exactly. And, and that's a, that is the hardest thing, is, find, is, is switching from imitating to your own voice. And I think that's what, I mean, certainly I struggle with the most. And, yeah, I think, well, I think that's... One of the many things I struggle with. <laughs> I think that's true <laughs> of everyone, though, that you'll start out sort of uh, imitating your favourites and then over time you'll... You you will develop that own voice. I think. Yeah, you kind of amalgamate all these people together to and create this new voice from them all. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's a rare, um, rare prodigy that that can suddenly emerge with their own voice entirely. The first thing they write or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, so thanks very much to Neil for taking the time to do that. We really appreciated that. Um, and yeah. if you haven't seen Guilt. Uh, I think it's on iPlayer. It certainly keeps coming back onto iPlayer, BBC yeah. iPlayer, that is, if you're in the UK. 
Um, it's definitely worth a watch. And it is, it's definitely worth a watch. It's only four episodes, but it's really good. Um, and who have we got on next week, Tarek? Next week, we're chatting with Harriet Tice, who is the author of Blood Orange, which was a Rich and Judy Book Club choice, mm-hmm. I believe, last year, I think. Yeah. And it's a domestic noir kind of dark drama. Yeah. Best way to describe it. Yeah, I think so. And if you're not in the UK, you might say what the hell is the Richard and Judy book club if your book is selected for Richard and Judy are two uh, TV personalities that started a book club kind of like Oprah I suppose in, in <laughs> the US has a book club it's the same kind of idea except they're not quite as big but um, if you get your book onto that book list then it, it does phenomenal things for your sales and things like that so we chat yeah. to her all about that and much more about how she you know, change from being a criminal barrister to becoming an author. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good chat. So we hope you tune in for that one. I'll be honest. I thought Richard and Judy had separated, but clearly I was wrong. <laughs> They've stayed together for the book club. <laughs> it's for appearances' sake. Yeah, I'm telling you, exactly. there's real problems in that marriage. <laughs> and if you would like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, drop us an email at podcast at rightgear.co.uk or send us a tweet to our Twitter account, which is at right underscore gear. Uh, And we've also got a Facebook page and Instagram feed as well that you can find. But that's all from us this week. We will leave you with one little advert for page one, the writer's notebook, as always. And we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, see you then. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.